Section twenty seven of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section twenty seven On Personal Character, Part one. Men palliate and conceal their original qualities, but do not extirpate them. Montaigne's Essays No one ever changes his character from the time he is two years old, nay, I might say from the time he is two hours old. We may, with instruction and opportunity, mend our manners, or else alter for the worse, as the flesh and fortune shall serve, but the character, the internal, original bias, remains always the same, true to itself to the very last, and feels the ruling passion strong in death. A very grave and dispassionate philosopher, the late celebrated chemist Mr. Nicholson, was so impressed with the conviction of the instantaneous commencement and the development of the character with the birth, that he published a long and amusing article in the monthly magazine, giving a detailed account of the progress, history, education, and tempers of two twins up to the period of their being eleven days old. This is, perhaps, considering the matter too curiously, and would amount to a species of horoscopy, if we were to build on such premature indications, but the germ no doubt is there, though we must wait a little longer to see what form it takes. We need not in general wait long. The devil soon betrays the cloven foot, or a milder and better spirit appears in its stead. A temper sullen or active, shy or bold, grave or lively, selfish or romantic, to say nothing of quickness or dullness of apprehension, is manifest very early, and imperceptibly but irresistibly moulds our inclinations, habits and pursuits through life. The greater or less degree of animal spirits, of nervous irritability, the complexion of the blood, the proportion of hot, cold, moist, and dry, four champions fierce that strive for mastery, the saturnine or the mercurial, the disposition to be affected by objects near, or at a distance, or not at all, to be struck with novelty, or to brood over deep-rooted impressions, to indulge in laughter or in tears, the leaven of passion or of prudence that tempers this frail clay, is born with us and never quits us. It is not in our stars, in planetary influence, but neither is it owing to ourselves that we are thus or thus. The accession of knowledge, the pressure of circumstances, favourable or unfavourable, does little more than minister occasion to the first predisposing bias, than assist like the dews of heaven or retard like the nipping north, the growth of the seed originally sown in our constitution, then give a more or less decided expression to that personal character the outlines of which nothing can alter. What I mean is that Blyfell and Tom Jones, for instance, by changing places, would never have changed characters. The one might, from circumstances and from the notions instilled into him, have become a little less selfish and the other a little less extravagant, but with a trifling allowance of this sort, Taking the proposition, come grano salis, they would have been just where they set out. Blyfell would have been Blyfell still, 
and Jones what nature intended him to be. I have made use of this example without any apology for its being a fictitious one, because I think good novels are the most authentic as well as most accessible repositories of the natural history and philosophy of the species. I shall not borrow assistance or illustration from the organic system of Drs. Gall and Spurzheim, which reduces this question to a small compass and very distinct limits, because I do not understand or believe in it. But I think those who put faith in physiognomy at all, or imagine that the mind is stamped upon the countenance, must believe that there is such a thing as an essential difference of character in different individuals. We do not change our features with our situations, neither do we change the capacities or inclinations which lurk beneath them. A flat face does not become an oval one, nor a pug nose a Roman one, with the acquisition of an office or the addition of a title. So neither is the pert, hard, unfeeling outline of character turned from selfishness and cunning to openness and generosity by any softening of circumstances. If the face puts on an habitual smile in the sunshine of fortune, or if it suddenly lowers in the storms of adversity, do not trust too implicitly to appearances. The man is the same at bottom. The designing knave may sometimes wear a visor, or to beguile the time look like the time, but watch him narrowly and you will detect him behind his mask. We recognise, after a length of years, the same well-known face that we were formerly acquainted with, changed by time, but the same in itself, and can trace the features of the boy in the full-grown man. Can we doubt that the character and thoughts have remained as much the same all that time, have borne the same image and superscription, have grown with the growth and strengthened with the strength? In this sense, and in Mr. Wordsworth's phrase, the child's the father of the man, surely enough. The same tendencies may not always be equally visible, but they are still in existence and break out whenever they dare and can, the more for being checked. Again, we often distinctly notice the same features, the same bodily peculiarities, the same look and gestures in different persons of the same family, and find this resemblance extending to collateral branches and through several generations, showing how strongly nature must have been warped and biased in that particular direction at first. This predetermination in the blood has its caprices too, and wayward as well as obstinate fits. The family likeness sometimes skips over the next of kin, or the nearest branch, and reappears in all its singularity in a second or third cousin, or passes over the son to the grandchild. Where the pictures of the heirs and successors to a title or estate have been preserved for any length of time in Gothic halls and old-fashioned mansions, the prevailing outline and character does not wear out, but may be traced through its numerous inflections and descents, like the winding of a river through an expanse of country for centuries. The ancestor of many a noble house has sat for the portraits of his youthful descendants, and still the soul of Fairfax and the starry Vere, consecrated in Marvel's verse, may be seen mantling in the suffused features of some young court beauty of the present day. The portrait of Judge Jeffreys, which was exhibited lately in the gallery in Pall Mall, young, handsome, spirited, good-humoured, and totally unlike, at first view, what you would expect from the character, was an exact likeness of two young men whom I knew some years ago, the living representatives of that family. It is curious that, consistently enough with the delineation of the portrait, old Evelyn should have recorded in his memoirs that he saw the 
Chief Justice Jeffreys in a large company the night before, and that he thought he laughed, drank, and danced too much for a man who had that day condemned Algernon Sidney to the block. It is not always possible to foresee the tiger's spring till we are within his grasp. The fawning cruel eye dooms its prey while it glitters. Features alone do not run in the blood. Vices and virtues, genius and folly, are transmitted through the same sure but unseen channel. There is an involuntary, unaccountable family character, as well as family face, and we see it manifesting itself in the same way, with unbroken continuity or by fits and starts. There shall be a regular breed of misers, of uncourageable old hunkses in a family, time out of mind, or the shame of the thing, and the hardships and restraint imposed upon him while young, shall urge some desperate spendthrift to wipe out the reproach upon his name by a course of extravagance and debauchery, and his immediate successors shall make his example an excuse for relapsing into the old jog-trot incurable infirmity, the grasping and pinching disease of the family again. A person may be indebted for a nose or an eye, for a graceful carriage or a voluble discourse, to a great aunt or uncle whose existence he has scarcely heard of, and distant relations are surprised on some casual introduction to find each other an alter idem. Country cousins who meet after they are grown up for the first time in London often start at the likeness. It is like looking at themselves in the glass. Nay, they shall see, almost before they exchange a word, their own thoughts, as it were, staring them in the face. The same ideas, feelings, opinions, passions, prejudices, likings and antipathies, the same turn of mind and sentiment, the same foibles, peculiarities, faults, follies, misfortunes, consolations, the same self, the same everything, and farther this coincidence shall take place, and be most remarkable, where not only no intercourse has previously been kept up, not even by letter or by common friends, but where the different branches of a family have been estranged for long years, and where the younger part in each have been brought up in totally different situations, with different studies, pursuits, expectations and opportunities. To assure me that this is owing to circumstances is to assure me of a gratuitous absurdity, which you cannot know and which I shall not believe. It is owing not to circumstances, but to the force of kind, to the stuff of which our blood and humours are compounded being the same. Why should I and an old hare-brained uncle of mine fasten upon the same picture in a collection, and talk of it for years after, though one of no particular mark or likelihood in itself, but for something congenial in the look to our own humour and way of seeing nature? Why should my cousin L and I fix upon the same book, Tristram Shandy, without comparing notes, have it doubled down and dog-eared in the same places, and live upon it as a sort of food that assimilated with our natural dispositions. Instinct, Hal, instinct. They are fools who say otherwise, and have never studied nature or mankind, but in books and systems of philosophy. But indeed, the colour of our lives is woven into the fatal thread at our births. Our original sins and our redeeming graces are infused into us, nor is the bond that confirms our destiny ever cancelled. Beneath the hills, amid the flowery groves, the generations are prepared. The pangs, the internal pangs, are ready. The dread strife of poor humanity's afflicted will, struggling in vain with ruthless destiny. The winged wounds that rankle in our breasts to our latest day were planted there long since, ticketed and labelled on the outside, in small but indelible characters, written in our blood, 
like that ensanguined flower inscribed with woe we are in the toils from the very first hemmed in by the hunters and these are our own passions bred of our brain and humours and that never leave us but consume and gnaw the heart in our short lifetime as worms wait for us in the grave critics and authors who congregate in large cities and see nothing of the world but a sort of phantasmagoria to whom the numberless characters they meet in the course of a few hours are fugitive as the flies of a summer evanescent as the figures in a camera obscura may talk very learnedly and attribute the motions of the puppets to circumstances of which they are confessedly in total ignorance they see character only in the bust and have not room for the crowd to study it as a whole length that is as it exists in reality but those who trace things to their source and proceed from individuals to generals know better schoolboys for example who are early let into the secret and see the seeds growing are not only sound judges but true prophets of character so that the nicknames they give their playfellows usually stick by them ever after the gossips in country towns also who study human nature not merely in the history of the individual but in the genealogy of the race know the comparative anatomy of the minds of a whole neighbourhood to a tittle where to look for marks and defects explain the vulgarity by a cross in the breed or a foppish air in a young tradesman by his grandmother's marriage with a dancing-master, and are the only practical conjurers and expert decipherers of the determinate lines of true or supposititious character. The character of women, I should think it will at this time of day be granted, differs essentially from that of men, not less so than their shape or the texture of their skin. It has been said, indeed, most women have no character at all, and on the other hand the fair and eloquent authoress of the rights of women was for establishing the masculine pretensions and privileges of her sex on a perfect equality with ours i shall leave pope and mary wollstonecraft to settle that point between them i should laugh at any one who told me that the european the asiatic and the african character were the same i no more believe it than i do that black is the same colour as white or that a straight line is a crooked one we see in whole nations and large classes the physiognomies and i should suppose not to speak it profanely the general characters of different animals with which we are acquainted as of the fox the wolf the hog the goat the dog the monkey and i suspect this analogy whether perceived or not has as prevailing an influence on their habits and actions as any theory of moral sentiments taught in the schools rules and precautions may no doubt be applied to counteract the excesses and overt demonstrations of any such characteristic infirmity but still the disease will be in the mind an impediment not a help to virtue an exception is usually taken to all national or general reflections as unjust and illiberal because they cannot be true of every individual it is not meant that they are and besides the same captious objection is not made to the handsome things that are said of whole bodies and classes of men a lofty panegyric a boasted virtue will fit the inhabitants of an entire district to a hair the want of strict universality of philosophical and abstract truth is no difficulty here but if you hint at an obvious vice or defect this is instantly construed into a most unfair and partial view of the case and each defaulter throws the imputation from himself and his country with scorn thus you may praise the generosity of the english the prudence of the scotch the hospitality of the irish as long as you please 
and not a syllable is whispered against these sweeping expressions of admiration, but reverse the picture, hold up to censure, or only glance at the unfavourable side of each character, and they themselves admit that they have a distinguishing and generic character as a people, and you are assailed by the most violent clamours and a confused babel of noises, as a disseminator of unfounded prejudices, or a libeller of human nature. I am sure there is nothing unreasonable in this. Harsh and disagreeable qualities wear out in nations as in individuals, from time and intercourse with the world, but it is at the expense of their intrinsic excellences. The vices of softness and effeminacy sink deeper with age, like thorns in the flesh. Single acts or events often determine the fate of mortals, yet may have nothing to do with their general deserts or failings. He who is said to be cured of any glaring infirmity may be suspected never to have had it, and lastly it may be laid down as a general rule that mankind improve by means of luxury and civilization in social manners and become more depraved in what relates to personal habits and character. There are few nations as well as few men, with the exception of tyrants, that are cruel and voluptuous, immersed in pleasure and bent on inflicting pain on others at the same time. Ferociousness is the characteristic of barbarous ages, licentiousness of more refined periods. End of section 27. Recording by Goldfish.